Tonight's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, <clears throat> chapter 34, <clears throat> verses 6 and 7. If you'd like to turn there, Exodus 34, <clears throat> 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. How in the world can we do it? How in the world can we look on others with the eyes of Jesus? How can we look on others with the eyes of Jesus? The world itself was intended to be God-centered. After all, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. So says Psalm 19.1. But the Word of God talks about in Romans 1, especially verses 19 through 25, though they knew that He was God, they did not glorify Him as God, but worshipped and served the creature rather than God. God-centeredness. The world was intended to be God-centered. And if anyone ought to be God-centered, it's the people of God. It ought to be the church of God. That means that every aspect of our life and work we see with the eyes of the Lord, including others. Sometimes it's easy to get that viewpoint out of whack, and Jesus addressed it. Look in your Bible at Matthew 13 and verse 15. He spoke to very, very religious people at his time and spoke of those who had eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, and a heart that would not understand. We can get a lot of things right and the main thing wrong. And as a result, we won't look with the eyes of Jesus at others. Now let me say this. Relationships with people are fractured and broken because relationships first have been fractured and broken with God. Relationships with others will be fractured and broken. But that will be true because relationships with God 
first has been fractured and broken. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4. Look at verses 19 through 21. In 1 John 4, 19 through 21, the apostle says, We love him because he first loved us. We love him. It's relational. Relational. If you love me, relationship. Keep my commandments. Obedience. Relationship is to motivate and encourage obedience. That's the will of God. You know, a person can be right on a number of doctrinal issues, and truth is crucial. But one can stress truth without really stressing God. But you can't stress God without properly stressing truth. Think about that. Some people in the church, on the other hand, if you have some that will stress truth to the neglect of God, you have people that will stress grace to the neglect of God overall and his truth. What God puts together, grace and truth, should be respected by God's people and God's church. Grace and truth. Now, Having said that, in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loves us. But the passage goes on to say, if one says, I love God and hates his neighbor, how can this be? How can one hate his neighbor who he has seen and really love God who he hasn't seen. Relationships are fractured and broken with other human beings because relationships have first been fractured and broken by people with God. How do we look at others with the eyes of Jesus? It's so hard to see sometimes. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, that was just read for us in the scripture reading, is the answer to two questions. Question number one, who is God? Question number two, what is God like? Who is God and what is God like? In, it's going to be, in the Old Testament, it's going to be difficult to find a more complete description of who God is and what God is like, certainly in two verses, than Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. You won't find one more complete, more comprehensive than Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it is so important that the passage is repeatedly quoted and alluded to throughout the rest of the Old Testament and going into the New for example, Numbers chapter 14, verses 17 and 18, the law. Nehemiah 9 and verse 17, prophets. Psalm 86 and verse 15, poetry. The latter 
prophets, the minor prophets as we sometimes call them. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Jonah 4 and verse 2. Joel 2 and verse 13. Nahum 1 and verse 3. What I am trying to get across to you very rapid fire, and I admit it, is that Exodus 34 is dealing with the matter of who God is and what God is like, and this is one of those passages that just says so much about God that we're going to hear it echoed over and over and over and over again. I think it's important to look at context and what prompted this. Exodus 32 through 34 the giving of the law, the golden calf incident and sin, the breaking of the commandments by Moses because the people were breaking the commandments of God while he was getting them. And if ever there was a time when people needed to stop and look at things through the eyes of God, it's then. And it's amazing how often when in the Old Testament this passage is referred to, it is in the context of the disobedience of God's people. People need to be reminded who and what should be kept central, who God is and what God's like. I wonder if it's any different for the people of God today. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 deal with who God is and what God is like. Let's look at this so that we can better look at others with the eyes of the Lord. And our relationship with others will reflect something of the relationship that we have with God. God-centered relationships. Look at Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. This passage answers the question, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Notice first of all in verse 5 and in verse 6, you will see in every major translation that I'm familiar with, and I suspect the one you're reading from, five different references to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. In each case, it is the word Yahweh. The Lord. And when you stop and think about what the term means, and you, it goes back, this, this idea of who God is and what he's like, this comprehensive description in Exodus 34 takes us back to early in the book of Exodus, to Exodus 3.14. Who should I say Moses has sent me? I am. Yahweh. The Lord. And the idea behind this is the Lord is the self-existing one. 
He's the self-existing one. You and I need to know at the very beginning, we're not self-existing. We're going to look wrongly on others if we bypass God and act like we're the measure and standard for everything. God was here before we got here, and he'll be here after we are dust. He is the self-existing one. Secondly, he is the self-sufficient one. Carl said well in both of our Lord's Supper meditations today, God wants us, but he doesn't need us. And you stop and think about that. You reckon the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would have a lot fewer headaches if it weren't for us? And I say that, of course, in a matter of speaking, a manner of speaking. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have had glorious fellowship and perfect harmony and unity. But he wanted a relationship with us. Didn't have a need, but he had a want and a desire. I understand that, I think. You and I are not self-sufficient. Not at all we need people we don't even get ourselves on this planet required mama and daddy and when we leave this planet it's probably going to require our families to help us don't you think at least many of us we need relationships no one is self-sufficient and then you think about this Yahweh is God's way of referring to himself as the saving one. He comes on the scene there with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And the whole purpose is, I am going to save my people from bondage. And I'm going to use you, Moses, to help. God is the saving one. Fourth, he's the ever-present one. I am. I am with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am going to be with you, Moses. And when Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always. That's not all that's in those verses, verses 5 and 6. Notice what's said about God. It's said in verse 5, he descends. And then it says something like this, Alan, I believe it said he stood by or stood beside. The Lord does. And then he passes by. And is observable. And then he speaks. He proclaims. The world itself says that this is my father's world. All creation 
should focus us on being God-centered. And then when you look at verse 6, as it talks about how God is compassionate or merciful and gracious, and talks about Him being long-tempered, it talks about Him as God. God. This is a different Hebrew term. It's the Hebrew term El. And really what it connotes, what it has to do with, is the power of God. So in one and a half verses, five and six, so far, we've had to deal with the self-existing one, the all-sufficient one, the ever-present one, the all-powerful one, who is God. That's a pretty good way of thinking. Now, that brings me to the second question. What is God like? Now, here's the context again. Exodus 33, verse 18. What Moses wants is this. Moses is interceding for Israel and trying to get Israel not to be destroyed by God. He's interceding for a sinful people. And he wants God to show him. Show me your glory. I want to see something of your glory. This is the ultimate case of show and tell in the Old Testament. And it's not even close. Everything else can play for the number two. Show me your glory. He wants a manifestation. And I suspect Moses is like us. Moses is thinking that he's going to get to see something of God's brilliance and purity and power and greatness. And it's going to be a beautiful sight to behold. Show me your glory. Now Moses gets something of that, Exodus 34, verses 28 and 29. But he asked God to show me, and what God seems to do is tell him. It says he spoke, he proclaimed. Isn't that what he said? He was wanting a manifestation, and what he got was a proclamation, a revelation of who God is and what God is like. Now, lest you think, we're not going to be talking about looking at others with the eyes of the Lord. Let's look at seven characteristics of God from verses 6 and 7 that tell us what God is like. And let's ask ourselves some questions about how we look at others on the basis of each one. I believe that everything from the pulpit to pew packers and everything that the church does ought to be God-centered. I believe that it is easy to get off track there. I believe that Israel did it repeatedly and we are ignorant and presumptuous if we think that we can't. Now, notice what's being said. First of all, God is merciful and compassionate. You'll have a word like that 
He proclaims himself as being merciful and compassionate. Do I look at others with compassionate eyes? Do I see the brokenness and the damage that sin has accomplished in people's lives? The Bible says Jesus was moved with compassion. Matthew 9.36 That he showed compassion. Matthew 14 and verse 14 Should those of us who wear the name Christian not also be known as people of compassion and mercy? God's mercies that were not consumed, Lamentations 3, 22 through 25. Judgment will be without mercy to those who show no mercy, James 2 and verse 13. Again, God is gracious or shows favor. Do you see that secondly? Don't tell me that the grace of God isn't found in the Old Testament. God is gracious. He shows favor. He shows people favor who don't deserve it. Who couldn't merit it. And certainly in the circumstance of Exodus 34, Brian, you've got people who are really messed up. And Moses is interceding for them. And he is reminded as God's servant, as the prophet of God, of who God is and what God is like. You know, you start reading Exodus, you're going to see that God's been gracious an awful lot in the prior 33 chapters. He parts the sea. He sends the plagues. He's brought them to this very point in time. He sent the prophet Moses. We are being baptized in grace in the book of Exodus. No question about it. Now, one of my favorite expressions, do we look at other people through the eyes of grace? Through the eyes of compassion? Do I form conclusions and judge according to appearance? John 7, 28. Be careful about that. Here's a third one. God describes himself as being long-suffering or patient. Long-suffering or patient. The term literally is long-nosed. I love the expression. What is God like? He is slow to anger. Potiphar, when he heard from Mrs. Potiphar the lie about Joseph coming on to her, it says that he was very angry. And the idea is he was very red-faced 
fire in his eyes. And his nostrils flared. Potiphar was really angry. God is slow to anger. You ever really get angry and you know your nostrils are flaring, you know your face is getting red, you know your blood pressure is getting elevated? (laughs) The term here, slow to anger, literally means long-nosed. He's slow to getting his nostrils to flare, getting his face red, and getting in your face. God's slow to that. It's probably a good thing given the present context in Exodus 34. Wouldn't you agree? Given the idolatry, given the disobedience, given the lack of faith, given a failure when God had done so much to show them so much who he is and what he's like that at the first moment, let's have a golden calf. Do I look at others with the eyes of patience? People test our patience, don't they? If it weren't for people, and if it wasn't for circumstances, I'd have no problems with patience. When you think about that, David Holman, you probably could relate to that right now with what's going on in Pam's health. If it wasn't for circumstances and people, man. But it's difficult. Do we look at others with the eyes of patience? Thankfully, that's how God looks at you and me. Fourth, the passage refers to God's steadfast love, to his goodness, to his loving kindness, to his loving, his loyal love. You'll have an expression like that. He is a God who abounds with loving kindness, with steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love and goodness. I think that there's some people that it's easy, easier to look toward with eyes of love. I think it's easier to look at Cherie with eyes of love in my life. I think it's easier to look at grandchildren who are small uh, with, with eyes of love. Some people are harder to look at with eyes of love, aren't they? How about those who sin against us? How about those who mistreat us? They are not fair in business dealings or whatever. How about people with whom we've had issues for a long, long time? The Bible says of Jesus, toward the end of his life, having loved them, he loved them to the end. You reckon that included Judas? You reckon? even as he left to betray him. 
the idea of being able to look at others with love. The word in Hebrew is hesed, and it's found over and over, H-E-S-E-D, in our spelling. And you have that wide range, goodness, steadfast love, loyal love. It's, it's difficult to fully try to get the idea across. But notice the next statement. It's truth or faithfulness. Steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. God is faithful to forgive us of our sins as we repent as Christians. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. God is faithful who will not allow anyone to be tempted above what they're able to bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. God is faithful who will establish you and guard you and keep you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3. If we are faithless, he abides faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 13. He's true. God is always faithful and true. Do we look at each other with trustworthy eyes? Do we look at one another with trustworthy eyes? Or eyes of lust? Eyes of envy? Eyes of abuse? We should not simply deal with symptoms. We ought to deal with causes. And the people of God, when we depart from being God-focused, open the door to all kinds of problems. Trustworthy eyes. We're to number six. Forgiving. God is forgiving. You know what? He really is because, because of Moses' intercession, Moses praying here in Exodus 32 through 34, God does not wipe out the nation of Israel. He's a God willing to forgive. And repeatedly that's seen in the Old Testament as well as the New. In my translation, the first word is iniquity. The second word is transgression. The third word is sin. God forgives of sin, period, but sin in all its forms. God forgives of iniquity when we deviate from what he says to deviate the next expression which is translated transgression in the Bible that I'm using there on the pulpit means defiance it's as if one shakes their fist 
at God and says, I don't care about your way. I'm going to do what I want. To turn from the what's right to defiantly clench our fist against God and say, it's going to be my way. And then the last word, sin, which is the general word for sin in the Old Testament and the New, to miss the mark. God forgives and wants to forgive when people turn aside from Him and from His way. God forgives when people defiantly shake their fist against Him and His will. He wants to forgive. God forgives when people miss the mark. He wants to forgive. He desires that that occur. He wants people to be God-centered. Do we look at others with forgiving eyes? Eyes that long for things to be right with God and with one another. Lastly, number seven. God is holy and God is righteous. This passage speaks of God not clearing uh, the guilty. Even though our God longs to forgive, He is also just and will deal with sin and iniquity and transgression. But when you get to Exodus 34 here, notice how things are termed. It's said in Exodus 34, note this in verse 7. By no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Man, does that mean that God's going to punish your great-grandkids because of something you did? No, it doesn't. It does mean that people make choices and sometimes the choices they make continue to influence generations that follow. But turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. The passage talks about how God keeps covenant to the thousands in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. But when you look at Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, it uses the same expression, third and fourth generation. It shows the same expression, thousands. But notice what's said. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. He's talking about idols. Sounds familiar to Exodus 32 through 34? Should not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord, am a, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now mark it and put them in your Bible, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see a distinction there? God wants to forgive. 
but he will judge in righteousness and in holiness those that long to pursue hatred of him and his will. But steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Turn to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. Look at verses 18 and 19. Having said in verse 17, Nothing is too hard for you, God. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Underline according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. That helps us understand third and fourth generation visiting on children. Sadly, sometimes the effect of our sin only becomes more and more hard-hearted in the generations that follow us. We need to be careful there. Am I God-centered as I view things? Now, what Moses wanted was to see the glory of God, and he would get a taste of that, a picture of that, but what he really got was more than a manifestation. He got a proclamation and revelation of who God is and what God is like. Now, as we close... Paya moment coming. One of those moments that you just go, wow. Turn to John 1, 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. Who is God? A manifestation and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of God. Keep looking at John 1, 14 through 18. What is God like? Full of what? Full of grace and truth. You see, what Moses wanted, he was going to get answered, but just not exactly the way he wanted to and when he wanted it to be answered. Because a prophet likened to Moses was going to come far greater than he. Aren't you glad? That God not only gave us a revelation of what he was like in Jesus. 
He gave us a manifestation of what he's like to in the flesh, flesh and blood among us. You talk about descending from heaven. You talking about standing beside us. You talk about passing by and making it possible for us to be with him forever. And you talk about his proclamation. Oh, what a Savior. The lesson is yours. But I hope as you leave the building tonight, you will determine with greater love and motivation than ever to try to look at every person through the eyes of Jesus. You'll never regret that, will you? But I guarantee you this, you may well regret not looking at others in such a manner. Let us stand and sing.